We can't overcome the problem of sin on our own. We're powerless to do that. We can't win the victory over sin in our own strength. And we can certainly never meet the standards of a holy God. The law cannot save us, but that doesn't mean that it's opposed to God's plan of salvation. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, as we continue to look at the place of the law in a Christian's faith, great to know that uh, the law still may have some value because I think sometimes once we come to know Christ as Savior and we understand the gospel message and we realize that the law does not save, there can be a temptation to, in a sense, almost dismiss it, wash our hands of it and think, well, does it really have any significance anymore? Yeah, and of course, that would be a great mistake. You know, all that God has spoken is his word to us, and it's of abiding value. And that's true with the law. We need to learn to read the law as Christian people, the Old Testament law, and there are various ways in which we need to learn to do that. But one way in which Paul is teaching us here in this passage we're going to look at today, one way in which he is teaching us to read the law is as a pointer to Christ. He, he talks about the law actually as being a schoolmaster for the people of old, a guardian is the term he uses here in the passage, to, to lead them to Christ. And it's still the case that the law points us to Jesus, and it does so in various ways. But one of the key ways it does that is it shines a light into our hearts and shows us our sin. It's a wonderful diagnostic. And as we see our sin, we see our failure, we think, I need a Savior and it points us straight to Jesus. And that's one of the key ways in which the law continues to function as we read it. Uh, there are other ways, too, and we could talk about those more. But, but this is, I think, the burden in this particular passage. And it's a lesson we greatly need to hear and understand. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today is Galatians chapter 3, looking at verses 15 to 25. So grab a Bible and join us there as we continue Prisoners Set Free. Here is Jonathan. Paul wants us to see here this morning just the sheer kindness of God, the grace of God that in his design from the very beginning, he chose to offer the inheritance of his promises on the basis of receiving his word through faith and not on keeping the law. For most of us here, I guess that's a very familiar truth. Perhaps it's an over-familiar truth, but I hope we'll never grow tired of it. I hope it will never grow stale for us. The vast majority of people in the world around us labor under the belief that any good thing that will ever come to them will come to them on the basis of their good works, of their moral observance, of their religious rites and rituals. But in the gospel, we have an insight, don't we? We have a discovery, a treasure that is unknown and unfathomable to so many around us. God has promised good to his people. He's promised salvation to those who believe, and he has chosen to deal with us on the basis of this liberating and glorious truth, the basis of his promise, the basis that as we receive that promise, as we receive it by faith, we're made right with him, and all is well between us and him. The law doesn't replace the promise. That was never the plan. That was never the idea. That was never the intention of God. Now, that's Paul's first point here. 
And based on that point alone, we might imagine that the law was actually some kind of a mistake or a little sideshow in the purposes of God. Something perhaps that God tried for a little while, but actually didn't work out so well, so he's abandoned it and moved on to something else. Perhaps the law was a bit like the North America Free Trade Agreement, as you'll have seen in the news this week. Something tried for a while, not much appreciated by some, and perhaps heading for the trash heap pretty quickly. Maybe it's a bit like the European Union from a British perspective. It looked like a permanent thing for a while there, a very good idea, but the people of Britain, well, they've thought better. They've decided it actually didn't work out for them, so it's quickly becoming an abandoned experiment. Is that basically what's going on with the law of God, a failed experiment, a big mistake? Well, not very likely knowing the God we trust and the God we serve, and to head off that line of thought, Paul now sets out to show us that the law does, in fact, have a significant purpose. He begins with the obvious question, the question raised by what he's just said, verse 19, what then is the purpose of the law? It's a good question. If we're thinking people, we must feel that it's an important question to deal with. At the same time, we may find that Paul's answer is just a little bit cryptic as we look at it. The first part of the answer comes here in the middle of verse 19. It, the law, was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, that's the first element of Paul's answer here, but what does he mean? What can he mean that the law was added because of transgression? Maybe it means that when God saw that the promise to Abraham wasn't really reforming the people, wasn't really making them turn from sin, he added the law into the equation to try and reduce transgression, to try and deal with sin, or at least contain it a little bit. Now, at first glance, that idea might seem to make a bit of sense. But the problem is, as we look back in history, the law didn't actually deal with sin in a very effective way. It didn't actually make the people any better, any less sinful, any less rebellion. We don't need to know the history of Israel in any great detail at this point to know that the law did not create a sin-free society. And Paul's going to make it very clear in the next paragraph just here that the law couldn't deal with the problem of sin and didn't deal with the problem of sin because it was powerless to deal with the problem of sin. What Paul says here literally is that the law was added for the sake of transgressions, almost as though literally the law is somehow magnifying the problem of transgression rather than immediately fixing it. The law was added for the sake of transgressions. That's a very intriguing idea. It's a little perplexing at first glance, no doubt. There are probably a couple of layers actually to what Paul is saying here, but at the basic level, at very least, he is saying that the law amplifies the problem of sin by defining sin as transgression. The law amplifies the problem of sin by defining sin concretely as transgression. The idea of transgression, as you'll know, is the idea of a concrete violation of a specific rule or statute. A boundary is laid down, a legal boundary, and when you cross that boundary, you transgress. Now, before the law was laid down, line by line, when the people of Israel did wrong, of course, sin was there in the days before Sinai. There was disobedience. There was a lack of loyalty to God, a lack of love for Him. 
But until the law lays down in black and white on tablets of stone what the requirements of God are, it is harder to identify that sin and recognize it as clear transgression. But once the law is in place, once it is written down for Israel, when the people of Israel sin against God, it is seen very clearly as transgression. They have crossed a line. And actually, that serves to magnify the problem of sin. It makes it bigger in Israel's eyes. It makes it clear just how bad it is. Like many here in the church family, we live on the fringes of town, on the edge of countryside. Our, our, our place actually backs on to a farmer's field. That's a kind of new experience for me. I've always or generally lived in a more kind of urban setting. And one aspect of that new experience for me is this whole idea of one person's yard kind of blending in to another person's yard with no concrete boundary to it. Most people in our area don't have fences or hedges or anything like that. One yard literally kind of blends into another. And that means, especially when there are kids around, that kids are often kind of straying into other people's yard, playing ball or whatever it is. And no one minds too much about that most of the time. I guess we all know that officially at some point, uh, our land ends and another, our neighbor's begins. I actually don't really know exactly where that is in our place at the two sides. We're not too mindful of it. No one's too concerned. But if our neighbors became annoyed or we became a little bit annoyed and decided to put up a fence around our yard, well, that whole idea of kind of drifting onto another person's property, that comes to a swift end. If a soccer ball gets kicked over the fence onto another person's yard and you got to go retrieve it, you got to climb a fence to get it. You know that you are on their property and not your own. You know you've crossed a line you know you've trespassed. Or to think about this from another angle, when we're driving along the highway, we all know that we're meant to keep our speed under control and we're not to be reckless in our driving. We all know that. But it's pretty easy to kind of conveniently forget the details of the speed regulations when cruising the 416 or the 401 in light traffic on a nice autumn day, the music's playing, the windows are down. We kind of conveniently forget a little bit. But those savvy people at the Ministry of Transportation and the OPP, they've gone out of their way to be helpful to us, to provide various types of reminder of what the law says. They haven't simply posted the speed limit at convenient intervals for us, but they've also actually put up those giant blue signs. I wonder if you've noticed those things. They always put the fear into me. Those signs tell us just how much trouble we're going to be if we speed by certain uh, degrees. 20km over the limit, X number of points, X dollars fine. 30k over the limit, X number of points, X dollars fine. 40k, 50k over the limit, well, lose your license, lose your car, lose your life savings. It's pretty much over. Well, the sign, it serves to clarify the issue for us, doesn't it? We can hardly plead with the officer who will inevitably appear over the horizon. We can hardly plead with the officer that we didn't know what the rules were, what the consequences would be. A general sense that I ought to be a bit careful about the speed and drive uh, sensibly and well, it becomes a clear sense that I am transgressing by this particular degree and face this kind of penalty. The sign doesn't necessarily make us slow down. It doesn't change our heart, but it makes our speeding all the clearer as an offense and as a rebellion against the law, as a transgression. 
like my neighbor's fence and like the OPP's helpful sign, the law of God defines sin for us as concrete transgression. And so it actually magnifies the problem and makes it all the clearer for us. Now, if the law is magnifying the problem of sin, amplifying the problem of sin, in some ways making it bigger, does it therefore run contrary to God's plan of salvation, to His salvation purpose? That's the obvious next question, verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, says Paul. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. No, there's no contradiction there, says Paul. There's no alternative or ulterior purpose in the giving of the law. If the law could have saved, then that would have been fine. But the law can never save, verse 22, because the whole world, the whole of humanity, is a prisoner of sin. We can't overcome the problem of sin on our own. We're powerless to do that. If we have any self-awareness, any real experience of trying to battle sin, we'll all know that's true. We can't win the victory over sin in our own strength, and we can certainly never meet the standards of a holy God. The law cannot save us, but that doesn't mean that it's opposed to God's plan of salvation. In fact, Paul wants us to see that the law actually serves and promotes God's plan of salvation. It actually works in concert with the promise of God to achieve the ultimate aim of God. The law and the promise, they are two different tools, but they are functioning together in concert to ultimately reach the same end. You'll have noticed that there's been endless road work in recent months. I've been watching it progress day by day. In fact, I've had the opportunity to observe the various stages of the project in kind of minute detail as I've sat stranded in traffic. anxiously watching the clock in the morning as I'm trying to get somewhere, and we're not moving. But now I look back on those months of delay with some gratitude because I think there may be a sermon illustration in it. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll win back some of those wasted minutes. Just follow with me here for a moment and see what you think. In the project of rebuilding that road, they use a variety of different tools to get the job done, don't they? They actually use some fabulous giant equipment. I was chatting with a friend in the congregation here a few weeks ago, and we both agreed that our favorite machine is that enormous million-dollar concrete chewer that they use to tear up the old road. I don't know if you've seen that thing in action. It's worth uh, watching it sometime when you have the opportunity. Now, that's the best one, but then there are the bulldozers that flatten the new gravel. There's the truck that comes and brings the new asphalt, and then there's the rollers that smooth it down. All very different equipment, some equipment that destroys, some that lays the groundwork, some that builds but all working toward the same end of that beautiful new road, all pulling in the same direction, all getting the same job done. The law of God and the promise of God are two very different tools in the salvation plan of God, but ultimately they are both pulling in the same direction. Although the law itself was never going to bring righteousness, it was never going to achieve salvation, it wasn't going to bring life, it would nonetheless serve a wonderfully positive purpose, a gospel purpose, if you like, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoner by the law, 
locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Prisoners Set Free. We're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. If you ever miss a broadcast or you just want to find out more about Encounter the Truth and Jonathan Griffiths, I do hope you'll come and check out our website. A lot of great information there and ways that you can actually listen to the program online if you happen to miss it on the radio. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we are in the book of Galatians, looking at chapter 3 and verses 15 to 25 today. So if you have a Bible handy, grab it and join us there as we continue the message, Prisoners Set Free. Here is Jonathan. So that's the next aspect of the purpose of the law. It serves to lead us to Christ. If you've ever been to London over in the UK, you'll know that the city is really a big collection of smaller towns and villages that have kind of been swallowed up as the city has grown over the years. When we lived there, we lived in an area that had very much kept its kind of village feel. Uh, it had a number of kind of local shops and it had a few local schools and people tended to kind of live within the village and walk everywhere if they could, leave the car at home. It was kind of nice. And because it was like that, the morning school run rush was a time when all the sidewalks were just crammed with kids and their carers making their way to school. Those little two-wheeled scooters were all the rage a couple of years ago over there. So the adults spent most of their time trying to keep up with these scooting, zooming kids and to try and just keep them off the road and away from the traffic. Now, lots of families in that area had um, two parents who worked. And, um, and many had nannies or other caregivers who either did the morning school run or the afternoon pickup. And so very often the site you would encounter at eight in the morning or three in the afternoon was the site of a very anxious nanny or lots and lots of very anxious nannies chiding and encouraging these rowdy children to school or, or back home, desperate to stop the children getting run over, desperate to get them where they needed to be on time. It was a scene of kind of managed chaos. I mention that because in verse 24, Paul literally says that the law was made to be our guardian. If you're following in the slightly more literal ESV translation, you'll see that it puts the verse like this. The law was our guardian until Christ came. This word guardian refers to a person appointed by a family, usually a slave in Roman times, a person who would care for, discipline, and be involved in the education of a child. And this guardian was put in place to chastise, encourage, and generally corral the children where they needed to go. And what Paul is saying here is that God's guardian for his children, the law, was put in place to chastise, encourage, and generally corral the unruly children of God toward faith in Christ. Now, there are undoubtedly a number of different ways that the Old Testament law points us to faith in Christ. We could spend a great deal of time together this morning thinking about ways in which the institutions and rituals and imagery of the whole legal and religious system of Israel pointed to Christ in prophetic terms. And there's a great there are great prophetic pictures there for us. How the temple system, for example, illustrates wonderfully the, the priestly work of Christ and the sacrificial work of Christ. And that would be a great study for another time to look into that. 
But I don't think that's Paul's main point here, his main emphasis. His main point has to do with the way in which the law highlights and amplifies the problem of our sin so that we will be driven to the Savior. As the law makes sinful people more and more aware of sin, as the moral law does that, as the purity laws make us aware that we're an unclean people, unable to approach a a holy God, as all the ritualistic laws and so on uh, highlight our sin, as it makes the problem of sin worse in some ways, what, what it should do and what it does do by the grace of God is it makes a sinful people deeply aware and more and more aware of the need of a Savior. It makes a sinful people desperate for a solution, desperate for freedom, for release, for salvation. It should, and it does, drive us to the Savior. Now, that's God's design with His law. We have three kids at home, and if you've got kids, you'll know how strong is the urge in a child not to ask for help and not to accept help when it is offered. Do you want help choosing what to wear today? No, I'll choose for myself. Thank you very much. And down they come in a pink leotard, a yellow t-shirt and turquoise socks on a February morning when it's minus 22 outside. Do you want help filling up that glass of milk? No, thank you. I'll do it on my own. And you just give up and you go straight and get the mop in the bucket because you know what's going to (laughs) happen next. Do you want help with that math homework? No, I can do this on my own. No, thank you. Just leave me to it. Back it comes the next day, covered in red from the teacher with a little note saying, a little bit of parental involvement would be really helpful here. (laughs) We're all inclined, aren't we, to think we can just manage on our own. We don't need help. And God in His great wisdom, God our Father, gave the law to show His children, to show His people, to show us that we are prisoners to sin, helpless to save ourselves, desperately in need of a Savior, who can win for us what we could never win for ourselves, who could free us from a bondage which we could never escape on our own, who can pay for us a debt that we could never repay. God in His wisdom did that. He gave the law to His people so that we might run to the Savior and cling to the Savior and find salvation in Him. I wonder if you've done that this morning. I wonder if each one here has done that, has run to the Savior that He might do for you what you could never do for yourself. It may be that you've encountered something of the law of God. You've been reading the Bible, and you've seen the standards of His Word, and you're aware of your helplessness to meet them on your own. You're aware, perhaps, of your guilt. Perhaps you read verse 22 in our passage this morning, and you just resonate with that summary of the human condition, prisoners of sin you see the problem. You feel there's no escape, there's no solution. And if that's where you are today, God's design for you is that you would now look beyond that hopelessness and that despair, beyond guilt for wrongdoing and bondage to sin, and you would now see Christ. You would see the one who has paid your debt and made you free if you will but accept by faith what He has done for you. For us who know Him, here's the amazing truth, the stunning freedom that is ours because of Jesus and because of His work for us at Calvary. The promises of God, verse 22, well, they're given to us, they're ours now. We share in the inheritance because Christ has won that for us. Because of Him, verse 25, 
We no longer live under the supervision of the law and bondage to the law. We no longer need to worry about rite and ritual. We're free to enjoy all that it means to know Christ, to be children of God, part of the family, secure in our standing before Him. Jonathan Griffiths, as we wrap up our message, Prisoners Set Free. One of the messages in our series called Jesus Plus Nothing, a series where we're taking a look at the book of Galatians. I hope that you've been enjoying this series. And if you ever miss a broadcast, I want you to know that you can always listen online. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org and you can listen there. You can also make a donation because it is your generosity that keeps this program on the station. And for your gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called True Friendship. Find out more and give online at EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, the website is EncounterTheTruth.org and the phone number is 833-998-7884. Well, thanks for giving and for listening today. I hope you'll join us next time.